2: Science fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight.
0: 106.5 FM
2: Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside,
0: and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is here and, and we're waiting for him to speak.
2: I shall speak. if I can, if I can speak, I had a gotta... A moment of inspiration about one thirty this morning. So I got up and wrote to the Sun Rose. So I'm a little bit groggy. I'm living on a well, Diet Cokes, I guess. Inspiration. Ins- I know. That's why I got up. I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm thinking of something good here. Let's go. do yeah. write it down. Go write.
0: So I did. Usually at that time in the morning, you're only going to get up someone your age to go to the bathroom. That's right. Well, I did. That, <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. That's the easy part. Yeah. Once I find it. Anyway, yeah. yeah Four or five times a night. So, you know. Not unusual. It comes of age. It, got, you're it right, does. You're right. John, I, I don't know what it's going to be like to get that old. I don't think I'll make it, but... <laughs> I, I, I had so many comeback
2: lines there. I'm just going to sit back to my sleepiness and let that one ride. Yeah, just just sleep.
0: Okay, well, today, let's get right into it. We've got a great author with us, uh, Mr. Greg Hurwitz. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, gentlemen. So, listen, uh, tell me how I've become a number one internationally best-selling author with 23 thrillers like you like what what's the secret
1: uh a lot of bourbon (laughs) okay okay
0: go you go slower a lot (laughs)
1: it's it's, uh it's typing lubrication that's the trick no i look i mean a lot of this is it's so funny because people people talk a lot about kind of academic intellectual background right for writing and of course it's very important of what Fueled me intellectual and love of story and everything else, um, but a lot of it comes down to discipline. You know, it's so much of it. There's so many people who have amazing or brilliant talent, and if if they can't wrangle the discipline part of it, also, um, then they can't kind of move forward. And writing novels is it's a big requirement of both. You know, it's it's you you need a lot of ass and chair time. You know, you need a lot of elevating the writing, making it something and the time that it takes to write sacrosanct, right? There's always things that are more pressing, whether it's getting your dry cleaning or eating or paying bills. And if you don't just decide to take the writing time and to elevate it above all other things in a way that's regular and disciplined, then other things will always um, intervene, and so I think the most important thing is to start by taking yourself very seriously and putting a schedule around it that is by, you know, some standard selfish. It's like being an athlete, right? You have to elevate your training and your time and your focus above all other things in your life.
0: Well, But how do you, how do you maintain that discipline? Because life is pretty unpredictable. So when you're sitting there and you're, you, you've scheduled your week, this is kind of what you're doing, you've got it all set up, it's planned. But then things happen that you don't expect, and that causes, you know, anxiety, grief, sometimes emotion and stuff. So how do how do you how do you get around that, or how do you get through that?
1: Mm. I have a brutal inner (laughs) taskmaster, you know, and I'm trying to actually over the years. I mean, I've been working on having that be to be having that be a better relationship within myself, to have it be something where. Um, the inner voices are more encouraging rather than just like get up, do it, go. But there's a certain amount of edge that's required for that, right, of carving stuff out. You're right. It's complicated. You know, it's funny. It's a lot of what I write about in Orphan X in the series. You know, Evan is caught in this push-pull between perfectionism and intimacy, right? He can be a perfect operator if he adheres to the black and white Assassin's Ten Commandments, but intimacy is tricky. Once you introduce people into your life and into your world, people are unpredictable. They're messy. They don't adhere to your schedule, right? They things become less predictable, and so it's about having different modes that are carved out. You know, for Evan, it's an operational mode, so we can go kill people, uh, which doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot of margin for error. Um, and for me, it's a kind of focused state that I need to be in. That's completely separate, um, and. Look, I have a lot of training doing some of this as an athlete. I was an athlete all through high school and college and continuing. And it's a, it's a good template for that. I mean, there's always something much more important than getting up and training day 27 for, you know, a meet or a competition that's going to happen on day 365. But you carve out the time and you just do it. And so I think discipline discipline's like a muscle that you just build up and build up. But look, I fall in and out of shape. I've just gotten back from a bunch of travel. You know, I just did a book tour for The Last Orphan. And so I'm rebuilding that routine and that ritual myself now and getting back to the right kind of time and the right kind of focus. And that's a challenge for all of us, especially with how the, you know, technology is increasingly insinuating its tentacles in every nook and cranny of our of our brain in our life. Right. And it's about shutting all those things out and trying to have the focus for the story where the story is all that I'm thinking about and all that I'm spending my time and the only place that I'm putting my focus, because I think where we put our attention is the most important thing that we have.
2: Well, how did you, how do you train? Uh, you had a, you've written a lot of different genre or types of media, comic books and screenplays and things. Were those the training to get to orphan X? Was that the muscle build?
1: A lot of ways. Orphan X, you know, is my 16th novel. I do think it represents the culmination of my writing career. You know, I was, I wrote standalones. I wrote a lot of different kinds of stuff. I'd written comics, TV features. Um, but with Orphan X, you know, I wanted to make sure that I had, that I would really thought through this character and that I really understood Evan smoke from the inside out, understood what made him tick, understood what made his dialogue and his action and his fight sequences and his character and his setting and his preferred beverage and his mannerisms and his inner life distinct from all the other amazing um series protagonists that I grew up with and loved and that nourished me from you know, Sherlock Holmes to Spencer to Jack Reacher to um, Jason Bourne to James Bond to, right, there, there's all these different series characters. And what I didn't want is to have something that I didn't have a three-dimensionalized character so that everything could feel different. Every action sequence that I write for Orphan X should not be exchangeable with a Jack Reacher action scene or a Jason Bourne action scene. It's got to have its own aesthetic to it. And every aspect of character, I think of plot as character in motion, right? So every time that I'm writing a scene, I think, how would Evan Smoke handle this in a way that's distinct only to him? What's dialogue that's only his? How does a fight sequence go that's different? And Evan's not the biggest guy like Reacher, and he's not the suavest, most handsome guy like James Bond. You know, I describe him, I say, you know, he's just an... Average size, average build, just an ordinary guy, not too handsome. He needs to bring the totality of who he is to any situation and any mission to, to to sort of win win the day, to accomplish what that mission is. And he's designed and raised and trained to be forgettable, to be expendable, to be disposable. And so the series is really about him coming out of this black and white existence. You know, before I begin the series, I think of it in so many ways is Evan, it's almost like Evan's awakening to the fact that he's Pinocchio. He's been raised in this sort of wooden world of operational. He's been hammered flat operationally and tactically, but he wants to be a real boy. And in fact, that's what he's told when Jack Johns, his handler and father figure, takes him out of a foster home at the age of 12 to train him to be an expendable weapon. But Jack actually loves this kid. He loves him and he tells him, the hard part won't be making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. Yeah. That's the best line.
2: One of the best lines of the book and all the, you repeat that one too, occasionally.
1: Yeah, I know that's in all the books and, and thank you. But for me, that was the crux of it to say, I'm writing a series that is about the process of becoming right. It's a process of somebody trying to figure out his greater humanity. Somebody who was raised in foster homes and in operational silos who never learned to speak the strange language of intimacy but he wants to figure out what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to try and have a place in this world in this way? Well,
2: anybody who's a fan like I am, who reads or listens to your the books, uh, you can tell that you know Greg, the author, knows Evan. But has he ever surprised you along the way? Is there something that you thought you know everything about him? Every way he's going to move, every way he's going to speak, but then he does something and the author goes, wow.
1: Constantly, constantly. And, well, and I'm not one of these people who, like, I don't talk preciously about, you know, beckoning the muse. And, like, it's very difficult as a writer. I I don't know. I find talking about process sometimes can feel precious because it's a job and it needs to be treated like a job. And it needs to be treated not too fancifully. And I think there's a lot of times when creative personalities... We, we sort of can talk about our craft in a way that elevates it above quote unquote normal endeavors. And the fact of the matter is, is what we're doing, it's not more important than being an ER doc, you know, or a soldier or a teacher or anything else, but there is a discipline, there, there is a code to the craft. You know, one of those is is that you put the story ahead of everything else ahead of what I want. I don't want my hand to be shown. I don't want the author's hand to be shown in the novel And that means that, Evan, when I'm writing well, the ideas, you know, and the and the premises obviously are coming from me. It's not some process over which I have no control. But when I'm really tuned into a way where I'm aligned with the story, there's sort of notions and scenes and snippets of dialogue and situations come into me um, in a way that feels like um, I'm being pulled by them rather than me pushing them forward. And so that happens with Evan a lot, where he'll take a turn or have a reaction when I'm putting myself in a position to be aligned with the story, which is being aligned with him, I can sort of at times observe what it is that he's doing. And it's not some magical process where that's happening all the time, but there certainly are instances where he's having a reaction in real time that I haven't sort of pre-considered or charted out. And it feels genuine. It feels like real writing. It feels like it's connecting to something that's real for how he's acting within the story.
0: So when you're in that place and you're writing and you're, you're going through the experience, um, at the end of it, how do you think that, that whole experience of writing that book and finishing it changes you?
1: It's so weird. It's like a chicken and egg. And one thing that has happened to me that's really weird with the Orphan X series. So, you know, one of my favorite lines about writing is from Joan Didion, who said, I write so I know what I think.
2: Yeah, I write that down. I write so I know that I think.
1: It's a great line. And so, you know, a lot of times I'm working on, like, I don't think in abstractions. It's funny, I was on a TV show once and my showrunner was very much like, this episode, the theme is going to be about betrayal. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not going to, like, what do you go off and think about betrayal themes for the A, B, and C story? It's, it's 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 not the way that my brain works as pertains to how stories are created. I think in scenes. I think in moments. I think in, in, in story plot. I think about character. I think about situations. It's very specific that then builds itself up towards thematic. So it's very interesting. It kind of starts in a very tangible way in scenes and conflicts. And then often when I'm writing, I'll discover, oh, well, that's what this whole book is about. I'll look back in hindsight. You know, I wrote a book called You're Next. That was a big, uh, one of my kind of Hitchcock everyman standalone thrillers. And at the end of it, I look back on it. I thought, oh, you know, this was, this book's all about my kind of terror at the increased vulnerability of becoming a parent. It's clear as day if you read the book. I mean, it's obvious as hell, but I didn't know it when I was writing it. I was just trying to write the best story that I could write. Um, and so a lot of times, obviously if you're writing, you're sublimating very heavily. You're you're reaching into parts of yourself that are that need sublimation, that need expression. And if you're doing a good job, then they come out in stories that are compelling, right? And don't feel them thematic or archetypal or symbolic in ways that are too obvious. One of the things that's really weird that's happened with Orphan X is I feel like I've caught up to the process in some ways, that it's not only in hindsight that I kind of realize what I'm working out, but as I'm engaged in it, it's almost like it's a conversation between me and him as I'm writing out the stories that I'm learning what it is that I'm thinking and grappling with because I put him in this kind of more extraordinary heightened situation that's eliciting or dealing with some of the different things that I've been mucking through psychologically or emotionally. But I don't do it on purpose. It just sort of happens where all of a sudden I'm like, holy shit, right? Here's this conflict. Here's the scene. And his engagement with the scene is, is I'm writing about something that is something that I've been going through personally or where I can bring a kind of swath of my experience to it, even if it's fantastically sublimated into something that's larger than life. And so it's a very weird process that like I'm writing him out and learning as he's learning what he's figuring out, it's reflecting back on the things I'm dealing with in my own life and vice versa. And it's become a little bit of a feedback loop. Um and I think that explains in part maybe why these books have had a a, a pretty a much wider reach and connection with readers in ways that are much more personal than anything else I've ever written in, in my career.
0: Just just sharing all of that, um, personal stuff in, in through your character, in through these books. Um, does that make you feel vulnerable a little bit, especially with the way social media is today and everything's so so out there and in your face?
1: Interestingly, it makes me less so. It makes me feel less vulnerable because I feel like if I can write about it, if I can know what I think, and to amend Miss Didion's quotation – Right. I write so I know what I think. I write so I know what I feel. Evan's often confused about what, what he feels or is supposed to feel, right? He predominantly sees the world through a filter or lens that's operational and he has to go back and sort through to understand what he's feeling in terms of emotional response and how that's connected with him in ways that have to do with deeper meaning and orientation within the world and his place in it. So if I'm writing those things out and lay them bare and can shove them from you know, within myself to wrangle them down, I get more clarity on what I think and what I feel. And that feels more, that feels like a a stronger position rather than a vulnerable position in a way. Um, a lot of times if you can give voice to something and, you know, ways that are certainly direct and sublimated, there's power to them. I think about this a lot with, with, in terms of dreams, right? I still adhere a lot to the Freudian school of dream analysis, um, Young too, to some extent, you know, that, that dreams are sort of coding emotions for us in ways that are, that, that make them not so disruptive to us. If we were smacked in the face with, let's say, an insecurity, a vulnerability, a fear, an anxiety, a concern, it might be blinding, right? We might just feel too undressed if it comes at us directly. And so dreams kind of arrive at us through a shadowed, um, language that's symbolic and confusing and unsettling in ways that are much more indirect that we can then sort out. But a lot of people, a lot of times we don't remember our dreams, right? Or we remember them in snatches or pieces or they're they're brought back to us through a sense of deja vu. But now and then a dream can push to the surface. And if you talk about it and talk it through and figure out what it's sort of trying to tell you, And get around on it, then we've we've sort of succeeded in masticating and digesting that process in a way that gives us some control over it to kind of understand what these whisperings are from the subconscious or from that or the unconscious that are telling us something we need to know. Right. And if you can if I can dig into a dream and really figure out all the pieces of it, which doesn't happen all the time, as you know, a lot of times we don't remember a lot of times we don't we can't retain it. We're pushing it into a different place that we can then integrate it it's like it's like the successful journey of something deep within us into a form that we can take it in and go oh shit right that's something I gotta look at I gotta look at my fear or insecurity of letting go of fill in the blank a younger version of myself a piece of a relationship, a piece of myself that's disruptive in a relationship a piece of my self identity that is you know, benefited me till now, but now has become overgrown and cancerous and disruptive. And so if I can get these things conveyed out in dreams, which is, a, which is sort of an outward pushing of a symbolic medium, and if I can write them true, and true doesn't mean that they're about me or there's a direct parallel or it's paint by numbers or anything like that. But if I'm wrangling around a story that's meaningful and structured and driven and, and feels real, then it's giving me a different relationship with those emotions and sentiments and thoughts and philosophies and values that I'm working through myself, and so I tend to come out the other end feeling um, exhausted but invigorated, rather than more vulnerable or scared. Well,
2: taking all that is—is is that why we like Evan? Because he somewhere in him is symbol is a symbolizing something that we, the reader can see in ourselves or he's expressing feelings as he's growing throughout the, the series that we want to grow those those subconscious moments is that is that
1: why we like him i look i think so i mean he's he's figuring out a process of moving out of a set of codes and laws right the assassin's ten commandments which are you know Assume nothing. How you do anything is how you do everything, right? You're you're welcome, right? Um, never make it personal, right? There's this set of rules. And the first Orphan X book, what's interesting is I didn't open it with him in the foster home. I don't open it with him in his training. I don't open it with him executing missions as Orphan X. I don't open it with him leaving the program and becoming a kind of a pro bono assassin on his own and creating, you know, becoming the nowhere man where he helps desperate people who have nowhere else to turn, who are being terrorized by other people that he can help, I open it at the point of the first mission where he that finds him essentially breaking every single one of the Ten Commandments. It's the process of him shattering out of an old version of himself and having to figure out a new template and a new mooring with his values and morals, recognizing that the old black and white ways of thinking will no longer serve him. I think that's something we all go through. I also don't think it's a coincidence that I thought of that and started writing this book when I was on the cusp of turning 40. I started writing this book when I was 39 years old. And I think that that middle stage of life, you know, if we're lucky enough for that to be the middle stage of life, is often where we're letting go of past versions of ourselves, of past um, values and definitions and rules, right? We're updating. We're trying to let, we're trying to burn off the the dead matter in ourselves and figure out how to re-equip and reinvent ourselves with new moorings to go into another phase of our life. And I think that Evan's willingness to do that and goal of doing that and his inadequacy in doing that, his, you know, his flaws, his screwing up these sort of personal emotional discussions and trying to get it right there's a lot of connection in that. It's very relatable. You know, not all of us are experts or have perfected the strange language of intimacy, right? We all feel in certain arenas, like we're an imposter that we don't have the rules, right? That an old part of us roars up and, you know, takes us off course in a certain way. And of course, those things are always the most painful or difficult when they've served us well, right? If you have an old habit, that's useless, like, a bad temper, right? It's easier to try and get rid of it or diminish it. But when what we're letting go of are these survival skills that have served us so well and given us our present definition of ourselves, have given us our life, have given us our job, it's a lot harder to just let go of it and feel like, look, I want to get rid of the curse part, but what if I have to get rid of the blessing part too? And so there's something I think that's very endearing in Evan who is perfectly at home garroting a child molester in a, you know, Muscovite banya, but gets undone when he has to make small talk at the mail slots with the, you know, single mother district attorney who lives downstairs from him, right. Or gets dragged into an HOA meeting and he's like observing it anthropologically. He is he, he's so out of sorts. He has no way to relate or engage with this. I think it's, I think that, There's something that's very relatable in that to a lot of us who are trying to figure out how to embody a consistent version of ourselves and how to move forward in the world. And also that we feel really comfortable in certain lanes where we know the rules and there's other lanes that we don't know the rules. And I think it also helps a lot because if I have a character like Evan, who's extraordinarily lethal, right, and extraordinarily Um, menacing and powerful in certain regards, it's very helpful to see all the ways in which he's not and have all the flaws. I used to think when I started writing that having, you know, an amazingly powerful hero and an amazingly bad villain, right, that made, that like, the worse my villain was, the stronger my hero was, and the better my hero was, you know, the more people would like him, and I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, my career has been a process of moving from heroes and villains to protagonists and antagonists, And understanding that the more flaws, the more shortcomings, the more vulnerabilities, the more unsureness of my protagonist, and the greater the argument, the greater the siren call of the worldview of the antagonist, the better engagement that readers will have in the story, the more that they will root for a protagonist who is beat up and figuring it out and trying to do the best that he can and trying to forge a way through that represents a better state of being than what an antagonist who's also really fucking appealing and has figured out a lot of ways of existing in the world, right? That he's just, he's up against something that is also compelling and speaking to us. And in all that complexity, I think, is where readers start to relate and start to see echoes of themselves and their own struggles and their own hopes and dreams and vulnerabilities and struggles with their value sets and struggles as we all have of being the best version of ourselves that we can be, which is hard goddamn work because how you do anything is how you do everything and trying to get everything right all the time. Trying to bring our best self to everything is really hard. And it's not, I don't want to write a hero who is a saint, right? Who has all the answers. Who's always morally got the upper hand. Um, that's not going to hold my interest, and I don't think it'll hold the interest of readers.
0: So, when you're talking about the intimacy of of your character in both, let's say, sex and violence, how is it that you write it? Are you conscious of how you write those details in the, throughout the books?
1: Yes, I mean, I'm conscious of everything. Everything. Writing a book, you know, the aim of that is is that everything should have meaning. Every character should be three dimensionalized. You know, I think a lot too of that great Tom Stoppard play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is amazing. They're the, they're the two most minor characters in Hamlet, right? And the line that's the title of the play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, is these two kind of foppish characters go off and they get killed and somebody comes back and just reports their death. And they're so insignificant that that's the line that tells us that they're, that they've died somewhere, you know, off screen, so to speak. And so Stoppard's play and the brilliance of this play is he takes the story of Hamlet and tells the entire story of Hamlet only from the perspective and position of Rosa and Guildenstern, the two most ridiculous minor characters, right? So they're having a whispered conversation as Hamlet goes sighing through the background, you know, not seeing them, you know, Oh, to be, or not to be right. The whole story is anchored around them. And so when I'm writing any character, um, no matter how small they need to be the center of their own world. This is something I also learned writing TV, where you have living, breathing three-dimensional human beings who you're writing for, right? And so if you have a, a scene where you have six actors in and they're all in the call sheet, you can't have one just standing there mouth breathing in the corner through the writing of the scene. They're human beings who are standing there who are actors who need, who need their lines. They need their perspective. They need to understand what they're doing in the scene and they need to have something to do in the scene. And so Everything is an opportunity, every character, every moment. If Evan has a sexual engagement, if he has an argument, if he, if there's an action sequence, everything is an opportunity to illuminate aspect of character or aspects of what the, the story is driving at and needing. And so I try to not have anything be dialed in or kind of typical or brushed over, um, the action sequences for me, each one of them, I treat almost like a three act play where they all have their own internal logic and they all have something to do with Evan's handling of this as a character in a way that's different and unique. Um, and we see that in James Bond a lot. You know, James Bond, there's a James Bond action sequences have a particular feel and aesthetic to them. We, I, I did a rewrite years and years ago on the sequel to the remake of the Thomas crown affair. It's like the most Hollywood story ever. When we're talking about sequels to remakes and Thomas crown has a very distinctive aesthetic to how those heists go, right? They're not quite magic. They're not quite high tech. They're not quite high, high stakes action, but there's a particular Thomas crown aesthetic. And so that movie didn't wind up getting made. Um, I was brought in just to rewrite some of the high scenes um, but, you know, I was trying to figure out one of the things that was amazing in the, in the, in the remake with Pierce Brosnan was he, he, he pulls off an entire heist using a single pencil, right, for that story. And so one of the, 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 you know, heist scenes that I wrote, um, I actually co-wrote with a partner on that project, Philip Eisner. We were doing this polished job, basically, is I, I figured out an entire action sequence where it all hinged on a screwdriver and a single screw, right? And so when you're writing the character, there's an aesthetic, there's a tone, there's a mood, there's a feeling state thats that, that I'm trying to capture with all of these details that all accrue to Evan, and everything comes back to character. You know, if you stop someone on the street and say, hey, what's your favorite, you know, James Bond action sequence – they might hesitate a moment, but everybody knows immediately how he takes his martini, right? Um, character is essential; it's the center of everything. And Evan has to stand at the center of all these books and missions, as the as the as the driver of the adventure that we're embarking on.
2: Well, you mentioned a couple words in there that are keywords: uh, aesthetic and senses. You you wrote TV and scripts that are, you know, all the senses comic books that are a couple books, you see them, and, but you have audio books too, which is where I go, and Scott Brick is great. Uh, how do you play with senses as you're trying to write all of that aesthetic, all that character, all that for each in every
1: individual character? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Look, a lot of this now at this point, it's very interesting because, you know, like to go back to the I write so I know what I think, I mean, part of this is, is it's interesting for me having these conversations because I realize there is some probably logic or rules that I'm adhering to that I've never actually thought about or pushed to the surface or to words. You know, and it's not like I'm writing from a template of going, oh, I should engage at least three of the senses in a scene, right? Um, but often that's what I do, right? If I'm writing a scene, I want to... What are the smells? What are the feeling? You know, does Evan have an injury? Is the injury talking to him? What's the air smell like, right? What is he seeing? What are the sounds? How are the sounds something that's forming a backdrop to the scene? Can I use the sound to make a scene more suspenseful or more horrifying? Um, and so a lot of ways they're sort of the touchstone. And I think quite often I'm using a great number of those senses to, to bring the reader in and to have those engaged to paint the picture, right? When you're writing a novel, when, when I'm doing a screenplay, basically you have sight and you have sound, right? That's the only things that you can really offer when something's being seen on, you know, you have sight, you have you, have, you have what you can see and what you can hear. Um, but with books, we're everything, right? We're the location scout, we're the cinematographer, we're hair and makeup, right? We're the props department, and so bringing all those things into life means having just the right level of, you know, verisimilitude to make it real, right? And to not descend into cliche, to not use received language. Um, and so I do a lot of research and thinking. It's one of the reasons I do a lot of front, front row research is to put give the reader that front row seat to the action, I've shot every gun that Evan gets on. I've done mixed martial arts fighting, right? When I'm getting choked out in a mixed martial arts chokehold, there's a different sort of claustrophobia and pain that ensues. The same way that when you get hit in the face, whether it's with a fist or a baseball, face pain has a distinctive quality, right? Getting choked out is distinctive, and part of why I go to sort of explore those things is that if I'm writing a scene where Evan gets choked out, what I'm trying to do is to avoid the cliched, which is to say, and then everything went dark, right? That's the end of your chapter. It's avoiding that. It's trying to describe things in terms that that make it real and that bring it forth. And the more I can embody that, the more I can do that. I me give you an example. One of my Navy SEALs friends was telling me, uh, you know, like one of the Things that's essential if you're coming up to kill to kill a sentry let's say on a quiet mission that you can't make noise is if you cut someone's throat from behind if you come up on a sentry and slit their throat you have to tilt their head forward so that the lungs don't make a sucking sound through the slit in the throat and draw attention That's a kind of detail if I put that in a book that feels, real operationally and that can remove it from being like, you know, Evan came up and sliced his throat from behind and dumped him and moved into the house. That just feels like a version of everything that everyone else has already read or seen, right? What can I bring to something that, that, that puts your senses on alert, that gives you that hurriculation, right? The goosebumps up and down your skin. That's what we're trying to do. You're, I'm trying to, um, intimate and suggest, um, Feelings and states by not overtly overwriting exactly every way everyone should feel, but finding these inroads from the senses that, that, that point to, that intimate for the reader, what and how they can feel and what they can think. So when
0: you're putting together one of these books, and even the whole series, uh, you mentioned how you know, throughout it, all of a sudden you'll go, well, that's what that means, or that's what that, like you'll become aware of things. Um, now, is there something that you put in initially? Is there a subtext or some sort of meaning you have behind the story um, during the whole process, or is
1: it completely organic? It's much more organic. It's really weird. A friend of mine asked me what the most experimental or unique aspect of the last orphan was that I had done, like what differentiated it from other books that I'd read and other books that are, you know, in the series and that other people write. Um, it's a friend of mine who's a reporter. So he asked these pretty probing, incisive questions. And what was really interesting is I had a whole bunch of answers to that, that I somehow knew, but had never thought of. I don't know if that's happened to you before when you're discussing something that you're working on, but it was like, Oh, well, I did this thing, and this was weird, and I played with that, and this was also different for me. But all those things just kind of happened when I was writing the story. It's not like I was thinking, oh, I'm going to approach it this way, and I'm going to have, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, In The Last Orphan, The Last Orphan opens with a fairly immense action sequence where no less an authority than the President of the United States unleashes this enormous manhunt to capture... And bring to ground Orphan X. He is not, you know, he's been off the radar. They've been unable to find him. They want him dead. He's got too much information in his brain for his head to remain attached to his shoulders, right? He doesn't just know where the bodies are buried. He's the one who buried most of them. And he's captured. And I knew I wanted to open this book with him being not just like his past catches up to him. It overtakes him. He is bound and gagged and controlled and brought in before the president of the United States who tasks him with something, with an impossible situation. She's got a billionaire, um, a a kind of renegade billionaire, the type of which we're familiar with because we see them in the news all the time right now, who has accrued enough power to be his own nation state, essentially. He's like, um, he throws these giant great Gatsby-esque parties in the Hamptons on Billionaire's Row and invites media moguls and Supreme Court justices and senators and puts every sin imaginable on display, but he's got cameras embedded all throughout the house. And so his Rolodex for extortion is quite extreme. And yet he's also has everything trapped within a system where he can't really be prosecuted or touched by the the brilliant way he's done this. He's a master manipulator. And she, the president, there's only one person who could possibly penetrate his security, um, And his compound and not only kill him, but leave no fingerprints and nothing that would trace back to the president of the United States. And she tasks Evan with doing this. Well, Evan took a vow when he fled the program that he would never again complete a mission on the basis of politics or power, that any mission that he does has to align with his internal moral code. And so he's given a choice, your life or your code. Which is it? What are you going to take? Are you going to commit this mission for us? Or we're going to put you in the ground. And that is unless he can figure out the third way, which is the way of the orphan. And so when he gets out of that situation in, in some manner that he does, and this is all stuff that's early on in the book, so it's not too, too many spoilers with this. He's pretty fucked up. He's pretty traumatized. He's not been recaptured and bound. His body and surroundings, his freedom taken away from him, being completely controlled, and so he comes out of that and he's thrown into a good amount of psychological uncertainty and trauma. Um, and in fact, I flash back to some of the earliest memories I've ever shown in the series of him. His first memories I even put in of the trauma of when he was this unwanted child before he became a foster kid, before he became an orphan in the program. And so one of the things that happened is that he's up against this character, Luke Devine, this billionaire who's a master manipulator. Right, who deals with people and attacks and menaces them psychologically and emotionally, he's no match for Evan with knife fighting or guns or anything. And as the two of them are circling each other, he poses no physical threat to Evan. But the threat that he represents is psychological. It's emotional. It's all kinds of manipulation. And Evan is sort of ripe to have to confront that, having come out of this setup where he was really traumatized and made unsure of himself in a way that I've never had him be in that situation in any of the previous books. Well, that's an interesting match, right? If I'm going to traumatize the hell out of my main character and have him come up against somebody who's a master, you know, a master at mindfuckery, that's a very vulnerable situation for him to be in. But that's not something that I kind of thought of in advance. That's something that just sort of happened as the story kept announcing itself to me. And so in hindsight, I can look back at that and think about the match between Evan's predicament, his internal landscape, and this distinct type of very new threat from somebody who is a manipulator who gets people to do what he wants, who gets people somehow to obey the way that he reshapes and pushes the universe around them. And so the menace that comes into Evan is at a time that he's most vulnerable to it. Um, that all just sort of happened as I'm as – I'm you know, compulsively focused on just the story itself. There's all these sort of themes and ideas and overlaps and opportunities that come out of that that aren't premeditated necessarily.
2: Well, in that world that you've created then, how much do you think of, and you have a series that is very successful and people like me hope goes on forever. How, how much do you think of the reader, your readers in that, in the creation of your story, your character? Are they, are they not there at all or?
1: No, um, look, I mean, I've been writing a long time now. You know, I've written 23 novels. This is my 23rd novel. And so a lot of the, the rules or the priorities around pacing and around engagement is not to say that, you know, look, every time you're writing project, it's rife with failure and rewriting and being aware of what's not working. But I do have a certain amount of these things shoved into my lizard brain at this point that feel... Like they're just operational, right? How do I make a scene clear? How do I not overwrite? How do I not? How do I make sure that the reader can follow me? How do I drop handkerchiefs? How do I have reminders of certain things that are coming full circle? And so it's a big part of the process I have in crafting a story, right? And differentiating the, you know, like in, in the terms of Michelangelo, right? It's like of trying to liberate the, the the statue from the living block of stone right as I'm chiseling away I have a backdrop like kind of an operational mode that knows to make this clear to try to make it compelling to try and make it pace it doesn't mean I don't screw that up and have to go back and go man no one got this and this part's boring and this drags and but there's a lot of that that just happens in the process of writing but I can't write with an eye towards what fans want. And part of that is, or readers want, I don't think reader, I don't think we know what we want. You know, readers might want Evan to settle down with Mia, you know, Hall who lives downstairs from him and have happiness. Uh, okay. That doesn't mean that that's a direction I necessarily will take the books that he's going to, you know, get married and settle down and start a family. And if I did, I doubt that even the readers who believe that they want that would feel satisfied with that. So it's like, there's a lot of different levels about taking, not taking stuff seriously or or, or literally um, when readers are sort of expressing that. But that said um, I have an enormous amount of respect and regard for the intelligence of the readers that I'm talking to. They're my collaborators. You know, if I have a movie You know, when I get a movie made, everyone goes and sees the same movie. If I write a comic, everybody reads the same comic book. But if I sell a million copies of an Orphan X book, there's a million different versions of that story that play in everybody's head. They bring their own fears and vulnerabilities and anxieties and hopes in their resurrection of the story. And so that's also one of the reasons why I don't want to overwrite. I don't want to have ideology creep into the books. I don't want to have things be too obvious because if I'm pointing towards something that is menacing or that is heartbreaking or that is uh, wonderful or charming, but I don't fulfill it, I'm leaving room for the reader to, to fill and to complete that scene or that moment within themselves. And so, so much of writing is about trying to leave enough room where where I've sort of created the conditions around the story for, for readers to engage with it and pull their own emotions um fourth which doesn't happen if you overwrite everything or overwrite violence or have gratuitous violence you know a quick anecdote about that i wrote a book i wrote a in in the, my book uh you're next i have two characters who are pretty menacing one's a, a shorter guy with a disability another one's a huge guy who talks very very rarely and i set a challenge for myself that he would only say one word in every scene in which he appears But it would be a really menacing word that would be very unsettling. And so in one of the scenes I wrote, there's a home invasion and they need to torture a married couple to get answers that they need. And they're on the couch. And the big guy who says one word per scene has a duffel bag on his shoulder. And the couple's tied up and they're terrified and they're about to commence being tortured. And the the smaller guy looks at the big guy and he says, where do you want to start? And the big guy dips his shoulder and the duffel bag slides off and hits the floorboards with a clank of tools. And he just says, joints. And I end the scene right there. So a few months later, the book comes out. I'm out on book tour. And this woman came up to me and said, I can't, I, I love the book so much. I have to tell you, I thought the gratuitous violence in this was way too much. That home invasion scene that you wrote was so horrific, like I could barely read it. And I was laughing because I thought, lady, that's all you. I ended that scene right at the point that I told you. I didn't describe anything that happened. No torture, uh, nothing in the reactions. But in ending that scene where I did, I've left that up to the reader's imagination. And the reader then fills in, right, their worst version of what that is. And their version of what that is is a lot more horrifying to them than what I might write if I spelled out the entire torture sequence and committed that to the page, and in fact, it was so horrifying for this woman that she attributed it to the gratuitous writing rather than what happened within her own imagination. A shameless wow. plug for Greg. Uh, <laughs> that, that,
2: that's that's a great book. You're next. I highly recommend. If you're reading Orphan X series, you should be reading your Next.
0: Well, and let's talk about how how you, how do you like to be found, or do you do you have like social media? Uh, website. What's, what's the all around for
1: your fans and readers to find you? I love seeing readers on tour. I just got back from a really big book tour. I'm at gregherwitz.net. I have a mailer, you know, an email list you can sign up for. I love seeing readers on the road, you know, once a year I tour fairly extensively and I do a lot of different events and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You can find me in all those places Um, And I post, you know, fairly regularly about what's happening in the world of Orphan X, you know, different writing things, different sorts of, you know, film and other things that I'm involved with. Um, And I I do like hearing and engaging with fans in those ways. So I'm 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 pretty findable.
0: Well, fantastic. Of course, we'll have everything up on our site as well. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, we've learned a lot, you know, drink a lot of bourbon and you're there.
1: (laughs) That's the only thing uh, so, you can do. That's it.
0: That's it. So, of course, we're talking with the uh, best-selling New York Times author, Greg Hurwitz, whose latest book, The Last Orphan, is out now. Thanks for being here.
1: Uh, gentlemen, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show.
2: To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.